welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our guest today is Stephen McNair, principal of McNair Historic Preservation, Inc. Stephen, thank you for joining us today. Marty, good morning. It's my pleasure. Stephen, what is McNair Historic Preservation, Inc.? Can you tell us how you got involved in historic preservation? Well, the firm started in 2015 and has become a national historic preservation consulting firm with clients ranging from the southeast of Alabama, Mississippi, and Louisiana all the way up to Massachusetts. What we focus on primarily are historic tax credit projects, national register nominations, and Section 106, which is a federal compliance for preservation projects. How did you start this business, and what are the business aspects of it? It hasn't grown into a large bureaucratic endeavor yet. You're exactly right. Cultural resource management is really the field that we fall under. That can be everything from archaeology to architectural history. And so oftentimes we do have to contract with archaeologists if it's a larger project or contract with architects if we have to have some HABs drawings done or something like that. But we noticed that there was a need for this in Alabama. There are very few individuals and even fewer firms that are available to do this kind of work in Alabama and generally in the southeast. There's really only about 10 firms that do most of the business. And when I say most of the business, you really have a public side and a private side. The public side, meaning most of your compliance and regulatory work. For instance, when it comes to Section 106 of the National Historic Preservation Act, what the law says is that if there's any federal money involved in a project that either does impact a property that's on the National Register or potentially impacts a property that might become eligible for the National Register, then an extensive survey must be conducted to indicate whether or not the project will have an adverse effect on that property or on that district. And so because of that federal regulation, State and local governments very often need individuals in the cultural resources field to conduct these studies. Now, on the private side, that's where more of the National Register nominations come in for individual property owners, although we, we of course, do the same thing for public entities and city governments when it comes to districts. But really, the private side focuses on securing federal and state historic tax credits for rehabilitation projects. You mentioned both HABs and Section 106. Can you explain what both of those are? HABS is a shorthand for the Historic American Building Survey, a program that was started during the New Deal, more or less to employ unemployed architects, engineers, draftsmen, etc., to go around the country and document America's greatest architectural treasures. Most of that occurred in the 1930s, 1940s. The entire database has been scanned and is keyword searchable on the Library of Congress website. Uh, But this program is still in existence. It's not easy. You have to have the right kind of architect to understand that HAB's drawings are extremely detailed and more intricate than, let's just say, typical construction drawings. The photography requires a different kind of camera with a wide-angle lens and black and white. There's just a lot more to it than taking an iPhone and snapping pictures, which you can do for a tax credit project. 
Now, HABS is ongoing. There's a, a similar project called HAIR, right? Right, and that's more on the engineering side. And so that's going to be your bridges, your civil engineering construction, more things along those lines. Uh, Historic American Engineering Record is the full title of that, right? That's exactly right. Talking about HABS again, that can be as small as a house, correct? You can do a HABS project on a house, right? Uh, you could literally do a HABS project on a guest house or a slave cabin, or any kind of remaining contributing element that, uh, that could be listed on the National Register of Historic Places. HABS comes in more when it comes to 106 than anything else, because if you have a historic property that is in a state of disrepair and is going to be demolished or is going to be moved to a new location, which is then going to compromise the historic integrity of the structure, that's when your State Historic Preservation Office and the National Park Service will often come in and say, look, you can do this project, but you're going to need to conduct a HAB survey first. And that way, it's documented for all time of what it looks like when it was a contributing structure or contributing district. And so that, that's a very common way to document history before we lose it in the name of progress. Why is it called a Section 106 survey? Section 106 is shorthand in the field for the portion of the National Historic Preservation Act. How did you get involved in this type of business, this entrepreneurial business? I noticed while working in New Orleans, after I received my master's from Tulane in Historic Preservation Architecture, I worked for the city government for the HDLC, the Historic District Landmarks Commission, and then the VCC, the Vieux Carré Commission, which is the French Quarter. And during that time, I noticed that there was a real cottage industry in New Orleans of individuals who would handle all of these projects. And it was only about 10 people for the entire state. That was on the government side. And so being the person on the other side of the table processing the paperwork, I really didn't have any understanding of the financial realities of a project and the financial realities of why you must get a consultant to make a project successful. But I noticed they were there, and they were always at the meetings, and they were always the one pushing the information submitting drawings, and really working with us more than maybe the property owner or more than a city government would. It sparked my interest, and so through some friendships in New Orleans, I managed to understand the business model that they were following. And in 2015, noticed that Alabama didn't have a comprehensive, full-service firm that could handle all of these things as a one-stop shop. What did you have to learn that you had not been taught in school or didn't have a lot of experience with? I had to learn that I'm spending exponentially more time with lawyers and accountants than I am with architects. And the reason for that being, if you don't understand the minute intricacies of the federal tax law when it comes to historic tax credits, then you can't help your clients. If you don't understand the minutia that is located within the subsections of the National Historic Preservation Act, then you can't have a full understanding of how to help your clients. And so... When it comes to architectural history and preservation methods and National Park Service standards and what the Department of the Interior expects and all those things, that's what we were taught in school, how to, how to do the drawings, how to do the photography, how to do the research. All of that was covered. But it was, it's kind of like law school where they teach you the theory, but they don't teach you where to file papers at the courthouse. And that's kind of what this was, is that I had to learn where to file the papers at the courthouse, metaphorically. So that's when you're dealing with CPAs who have experience with tax credit projects. You're dealing with attorneys that know how to structure a deal with an LLC and a pass-through, and that way the entity that owns the building can make the most of their credits. And you're also dealing with attorneys with the Department of Transportation, city planners, lots of city officials. You've got to be able to navigate those roads and understand who is the decision maker and how you can help everybody as a consultant.
I had to do quite a bit of research and interviews and bought a lot of people lunches before I could market my firm. Otherwise, it would have been irresponsible to tell people I knew what I was doing and then bill them for the time while I was learning on the job. If you were going to tell anybody how to get into this business, what would you tell them that they needed to prepare for? I would recommend that an individual either has a long internship or an employment with a government agency at some point in their career before they turn to private practice. Because the mindset of the government operation, whether it be local, state, or federal, versus the mindset of the private individual with the project and the construction loan and the bank breathing down their neck is very, very different. It's an ocean of a divide there. And you've got to be able to understand both sides. And so if you don't understand what's happening at the bureaucratic level, then you're going to become frustrated and your project's going to take longer and it's going to be more expensive. On the other hand, if you're only on the bureaucratic side and don't understand what it means to sit in an office where you're talking about employing hundreds of people for a multi-million dollar project and taking out loans and risking your career for a project that hinges on applications with the government, then you can't understand both sides. And so you got to really understand where both sides are coming from and act as a mediator between the two. And that's really the skill set that I bring more than anything else, having been on the private and public sides and being able to understand the language they both use because they're so different. I recommend anybody just take a holistic approach to their education. Work with the government, then work with a contractor, or work with a local agency, and then work with a developer, and just try to see both sides. Very interesting. Now, you talked about your own education. Tell us what that education was. I started at the University of Alabama. I have a double degree in history and English uh, with a minor in art history and graduated in 2004. Uh, from there, went to Tulane University and received a master's in architecture with an emphasis on historic preservation. After then having worked in New Orleans for about five years, then went to the University of Edinburgh in Scotland and received a Ph.D. in architectural history from their school of architecture. Why Edinburgh? It had to do more with my dissertation. My field of interest, aside from cultural resource management, is the architecture of religion. And what I mean is the relationship between the built environment and theology. So I focused on ecclesiology, which is a very specific form of Anglican and Episcopal architecture that formulated on the theological side at Oxford University and the architectural side at Cambridge University and coalesced into a global movement that we still see today within the Anglican and Episcopal Church. And we see that in the architecture. The architecture, both inside and out. Now, the architecture is a reflection of the theology and uh, is the physical manifestation of the Book of Common Prayer and how that relates to the liturgy. So all of these things were taken into account, as opposed to a traditional, and these are Protestant churches, of course, to, as opposed to taking the traditional Protestant route of focusing on the oratory, meaning the spoken word, these were focusing on the ceremony and all that comes with that, but also quite a few architectural principles that are eminently fascinating. For instance, you'll see lots of exposed brick and exposed wood because there was a real emphasis on the honesty and materials. You'll see an emphasis on a chancel that is distinct and separate from the nave because of the emphasis on the sacraments, a center aisle for the procession. Lots of these small little details. And, of course, the Gothic Revival style, which, while borrowed from the pre-Reformation Catholics of England, was altered to meet their spiritual and theological and architectural needs. Have you been able to do any further study since you've been back in the States? 
I have. I recently had an article published in Alabama Heritage Magazine. It focuses on Richard Upjohn, an English-born architect who came to the United States and made his mark, of course, with Trinity in New York in lower Manhattan with dozens of residences and churches across the country. And Alabama is no stranger to that in that he never came to Alabama individually, but he was one of the individuals who made a pattern book that impacted our state and still impacts our state. So I focused on uh, Richard Upjohn for an article and also received space for an article in the southeastern chapter of the Society of Architectural Historians Academic Journal on the Chapel of the Cross in Mississippi, which is really the first of its kind in the entire southeast. And then just a few months ago, presented on the relationship between Bishop Leonidas Polk of Louisiana, the first Episcopal bishop who, of course, went on to be a general for the Confederacy, and the relationship between Polk and slavery and architecture. And that was presented at a conference at Tulane. How then did you get into the field itself, and who brought you into the field? I was brought into the field by John Sledge, architectural historian from Mobile, who still is employed with the Mobile Historic Development Commission and, of course, is a prolific author and historian of all things Alabama and Gulf Coast. He took me in in high school, and so I started doing internships with him and Deborah Bemis, who at the time was the director, and spent a lot of time doing survey work with them and photography and all the things that a high school student is allowed to do. But really, it was shadowing and, and understanding the day-to-day -day operation. And then uh, during college, I would come home in summers and do the same thing. So it really gave me a, an insight to prepare myself to work for the HDLC after graduating from Tulane and that I already understood the expectations, how to deal with the general public, which is a complicated process. Um, how to prepare and present at a public meeting, because all of these government agencies have to answer to a commission and or to the general public. While we like to associate cultural resource management and historic preservation as maybe sitting in an archive somewhere, the reality is if you work for the government, it's going to be a very public process. How do you see your future playing out? That's a good question. I think part of that depends on if the state of Alabama renews the state historic tax credit program. That is an incentive that was extremely successful from 2013 to 2015 and is no longer available for state projects, as opposed to surrounding states, which do have them. If that program doesn't come back, it'll certainly impact the revenue for the firm. But that being said, buildings only get older. And so with a threshold of only being 50 years to be considered eligible for the National Register, eligible for historic tax credits at the federal level, there are more buildings than ever that are going to come in that window, therefore requiring more tax credit work, more National Register nominations, more 106 work. So really, I think the field is only going to grow. I mean, we've seen this in places like California where they've really just started to kind of come online with the idea of these firms that have been in place in like Pennsylvania and New York for 20, 30 years. It is definitely a growing industry. Outside of the failure of the tax credit to come back, what might impact your business? On the private side, the biggest impact is the real estate market. If you don't have developers buying properties, then you don't have tax credit projects. As the real estate market goes, so goes my tax credit projects. On the public side, very often as federal and state grants go, so goes my public work. Both of those are tied into entities that I can't control which is why you have to keep up with so much, whether it be state laws and regulations or news out of Washington on the tax code, or even, the, like I said, the real estate market. So there's a lot of moving parts with everything that we do. I was going to say it's really quite integrated, and even more so than you might imagine, until you get into the action itself. That's exactly right. Stephen, thank you very much for speaking with me today. Thank you for this opportunity. I really enjoyed it. 
Thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at city stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.